competitive 40k network presents art of war art of war strategy and tactics discussions with the best players on the planet on the planet with your host paul murphy and expert coach nick nanavati Hello and welcome to an episode of the Art of War podcast. My name is Paul Murphy, your host. I'm joined by Nick Nanavati. What's up, everyone? So good to be back. Another exciting episode this week. Yeah, back to back. People might not even know that you were gone. I know. That's because we did the magical thing of pre-recording episodes and, and you didn't even notice. I noticed, though. It's been like two weeks since we recorded a show. I'm itching. But you got to stay tuned to the Art of War Network to hear about all the stuff in Europe, the WTC, and all the stuff that learned, and all the tricks and stuff. Anyway, you don't want to miss a minute of the stuff all over the network. And today, we are joined by Chase Chappelle. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hey, Chase. Welcome to the show. I'm very excited to talk about your list. Uh, you actually piloted Yanari to victory in, in Palm Springs, the Palm Springs Open, out there on the West Coast. Yes, sir. It was a hard-fought victory, for sure. It almost felt perfectly timed. Like a lot of our Warden Discord members were like, where's the Yanari content? What do Yanari do? And then I was like, I don't know. I don't get this army. And then Chase, out of nowhere, coming out of the blue, coming out of the Palm Springs with a W6 and O with Yanari of all things. How's that feel? Oh, it feels great. And yeah, as, as far as timing goes, it feels pretty sweet. Uh, yesterday, you guys on uh, Art Award Down Under, uh, you were with Skari and you guys went over Yanari. So yeah. it feels it feels great to to follow up after Scary. Uh, it's awesome when like a schedule comes together. Oh, beautiful! Right, <laughs> almost like the the fates are aligning. Very you know Aldari type thing. In Yanari, they they you know of course were super popular back when they had just a very aggressive playstyle. Could kind of uh, almost like supercharge certain phases of the game. And now you don't see him as much because I think there's a lot of finesse in the list. And your list in particular, we're going to run through some some pieces that maybe people haven't seen in a while. And then we'll talk to you about how it all comes together. I want to remind folks that this is part one of a two-part conversation. If you want to hear part two, you got to subscribe to the podcast and you'll, you'll get into like super nitty-gritty. But in this part, or in this episode, we're going to talk about the list itself. We're going to talk about, uh, you know, maybe a little bit about your path to victory, how the list kind of comes together and plays, and then also about maybe some stratagems and secondaries that are your go-tos over the course of a tournament. But it is no easy feat to win a six-rounder. Can you tell us what was in the list? All right. Sure. Uh, we'll start with uh, HQs. Um, I did the uh, the fancy little dance move where you take the auxiliary support detachment so you can bring a Phoenix Lord and still have a... Uh, Yanari Italian detachment. So I was able to take Baharoth. Can't leave home without Baharoth and in any uh, craft world. Fan favorite. Exactly. Uh, then I play uh, a Farseer on foot, Shadow Seer, of course, the Incarn, the whole reason to be Yanari in the first place. Take uh, Warlock Skyrunners, uh, a little three pack so you can cast two spells. Take two Rangers and Cavalite Warriors, a squad of five Banshees, uh, kitted out exactly how everyone loves them uh, Mirror Swords, Piercing Strike, Crone Scream. Striking Scorpions, same thing. Fighting Blade, Crushing Blow. We have another Foot Warlock. Pack of three Shroud Runners. A Falcon. Three D-Cannon support weapons. A Hemlock Wraith Fighter. And a Void Raven Bomber. Before we get into this whole list and how it plays, because it seems like a very uniquely slotted list with a lot of different interactions, let's just talk about how Yanaria works. It sounds like you just combined three different armies into one detachment, took an auxiliary for Baharath, no one even knows what the Incarn does. It's a very 
esoteric faction that doesn't really see too much play. So what are the rules behind it? All right, well, you know, I get their uh, plus one to hit whenever um, their unit is under starting strength. Um, so if you lose one Banshee, then the other four Banshees are now plus two weapon skill, that kind of thing. Um, you're always fight first across the board, which is probably the bigger deal. And uh, you get to bring the Incarn and all of all of the uh, Yanari spells. Yeah, you do get access to your own spell tree, the Incarn. And you can mix different units in your detachments. You have one battalion with Drukari and Harlequins and Eldari all, or Craftworlds all in the same thing. Um, what do you give up to take all that? You're giving up. I mean, you do get to keep Strands of Fate. Um, you only get to use them on Aserani units that have it in their data sheet. So my Shadow Seer, the uh, Bomber, the Cabalites, they won't be able to use them. But as a whole, I will. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're giving up uh, probably the best Eldar spells. You know, Guide, Doom, Executioner, Fortune, all, all those good ones. Yeah, that's about what you're giving up. It may sound like a lot, so we're going to have to see all this comes together. And, you know, you've got some things in here like a Falcon. The Falcon, I kind of expected to be more of a mainstay in the Eldari list. You don't see it as much. How is it working for you here in the in the Yunari side of things? So for me and for Yunari, I'm kind of taking everything and, and cranking it to 10 as far as, you know, Alpha Strike, Kill Potential, try to do my secondaries alongside trying to you in your deployment zone and keeping you off of primaries because i found with testing other eldar lists we don't really have the fighting power and the staying power to go toe to toe and to be able to last five rounds so i kind of cranked it up and said you know what i'm gonna hit you so hard early hopefully i take enough off the board where your counter punch is going to be a little softer maybe i can survive a little longer and then i'm just going to keep hitting you so just to, to catch people up, the Falcon it operates very functionally akin to a drop pod, except it is does not come down immobile. It comes down with actually guns and can have troops inside. Oh yeah, yeah. the uh, yeah to, to tie into you know, the, the babble I just said, the Falcon comes in. It can come in turn one with Cloud Strike. It can drop Banshees out, and they're right into combat. You put it in reserve, you know, in the beginning of the game, you can put things in it and it comes down with some very effective weapons. And then it, because it has a transport capacity of six, you can put a lot of your units in there. And I think you can change those units out depending on whatever it is your opponent is. I think it gives you a little bit of extra flexibility. Did you use that during the course of your games? Uh, and this list is, is a little more tailored to, it changes with the timing of when I might be dropping the Falcon in. And of course, placement and all that matters as well. But as far as what I put in the Falcon, uh, typically doesn't change too much. And what was that? Uh, it'll always be typically the the Farseer and the Banshees. All right. So I'm, I'm really struggling to see exactly how this list plays on the table. I know you mentioned it's an aggressive style. You're not leaning into Eldar's very limited defensive capabilities. So instead of trying to play like a Hail of Doom style Eldar list that tries to avoid being shot by fire and fading and battle focusing and picking and choosing its fights, you used to maybe just try and do crippling damage to your opponent quickly and early, so that doesn't matter, they can't hit you back because they're dead. Is that kind of the idea? Exactly. It's kind of um, setting the field for the Incarn to really shine. So spreading out, hitting them on multiple fronts, kind of corralling them at the same time, and taking out all of the uh, high high uh, power threats that would normally be able to take an Incarn on. All right, let's start with the Incarn, since she seems to... Oh, you want to jump right to the Incarn shenanigans. I, mean, I was going to save that. You want to save it, Paul? I feel like she's like the centerpiece. It's like, I don't understand anything until we cover her. Until Okay, well, let's go with the Incarn then. I did, you know, we gotta, there's a lot to unpack in this list, but it is, it, this is a spicy bit. All right. Uh, so the, the Incarn, she can uh, pop up whenever anything dies, either my units or your units. 
Um, she does need to be deployed on the battlefield turn one in order to teleport turn one. Um, so that's that's something that is catching a lot of Yunari players off because they want to hold her in deep strike and keep her kind of safe and then bring her in. There's a lot um, of tricks to, to her teleportation because she places herself where the last model of the unit dies. So you remember you remove casualties one by one by one by one. So you can really finagle where she appears and when. Yeah, planning out how your models die. This is probably the only time people really think about that. Is is with the incarn because uh, you don't you can't come in with an engagement range of enemy units, so you, you got to kind of make sure that they are not screening out the incarn from coming in. Would she come in as close as possible an inch away, or is she just not able to? Uh, she's not able to come in with an engagement range of uh, enemy units. Okay. So yeah, you can't do the as close as possible, but an inch away. Any of the the other. Uh, old kind of wording so if you die in melee and like assuming it's like a congested close combat and you, you can't place your incarn basically on top of your opponent then she just can't appear yep that's yep. a brutal change i did not catch that one okay so what else do you do um she comes in with a flamer uh she can target anything within uh her target range which is six inches with the flamer um she comes in with the two uh castable powers she can pick anything from the uh yanari tree um, depending on if you want to buff your units, she can be very support based, or she can come in and just do tons of mortal wounds all around her and then, uh, charge something. And, uh, with her strength 11, six attacks, AP four, D three plus three, no invulnerable saves attacks. Um, she's typically gonna, gonna kill just about any target she wants to go into unless it's, a uh, you know, six or more models. Yeah. She is monstrous in close combat. Her profile also changed as well, too. She gained like the avatar half damage, and she went up to toughness 7. And she also gained a couple wounds. I think she's 12 wounds now, which means she can be targeted. She has been from lookout, sir. How does that change her playability, I guess? Isn't she a little easy to just blow up? Uh, yeah, she's she's definitely not as tanky, maybe even as uh, it seems on her data sheet. Um, if she comes in too close to a big chunk of their army and you didn't have a plan to get her out of there, she's probably not going to last very long because she's gonna she's gonna be a magnet for for everything on their side of the board that can touch her. So yeah. trying to trying to finesse and kind of build yourself ways to have her hit and then kind of teleport away is probably that that finesse that you really need to to uh, be on top of when you play Yanari. I would say the Incarn in particular is probably one of the most challenging and skill-requiring models in all of 40k. I've used her a lot of times in previous editions, and there's quite the learning curve to, to knowing how to use her. So congratulations on unlocking that cool code. Um, it does have a 4-plus and vulnerable save, but still, you know, it's... It's, it's one of those models that when it's on the table, it's obviously going to be like a focus of your opponent because the model looks so cool, a fairly large model. And, you know, once you start describing the stats, it's going to be a priority. Yeah, she's a monster. <laughs> so you mentioned the yo-yo trick, like getting her out safely after she attacks something. Could you just break down what that looks like exactly? Uh, yeah, for sure. For You, you would uh, you typically get multiple, com uh, multiple units into combat. Um, different sides of the board and you attack with her first so she gets to get all of her output and then you go to a different combat where you you set it up you softened up the other unit and you know your unit is going to be able to take their unit out or vice versa you're maybe sending something in that you know is going to die in that combat and then you activate over there and something dies and 
there she goes. Uh, you can't hit her back. She's she's now on the other side of the field. Almost suicidally. I hadn't thought of that. That's pretty cool. Um, so well, let's talk more on a conceptual level, back to what your list actually does. So we have the Incarn. She teleports around. That's awesome. Banshees and a Farseer going to a Falcon. Deep Strike turn one. Ideally use Fate Dice to charge something, but I see you've also taken Ghost Walk, which is plus two to charge, to really make sure you hit charges out of reserve. What else are we doing here? We have random Void Raven Bomber, Hemlock, one of each troop squad. I just don't understand this army. <laughs> All right. I'll kind of go over the, the, the battle plan here. So if we were lucky enough to go first and we didn't have to Phantasm our bomber and our other plane off the board to, to, to kind of save them, we get to fly straight into the other army, pick the juiciest spots for a Void Raven Bomb, pick a nice... Uh, nine inch wide spot for the hemlock and so the hemlock can do storm of whispers and it, it kind of creates a a one-two punch of mortal wounds in a, in a very wide area what is storm um, of whispers in the, and how does the void riven bomb work just for those unfamiliar for sure the void riven bomb you pick a point anywhere the bomber flew over and then a six inch radius from that point you're going to roll a four up for a non-character uh five up for a character if you hit then you're doing D6 Mortal Wounds to that unit. And there's no cap of how many units you're going to hit, and going up to 6 Mortal Wounds for that unit can be very impactful. Uh, as far as the Hemlock Wraith Fighter, it is, uh, it's a psychic jet. It's and one of those it, throwback it, units that were quite popular for a year or so, but have uh, but mostly been you know, kind of living off the table rec- until recently. Yeah, it's, it's definitely um, a spicy take, because a lot of people see 215 points for a jet that doesn't even have an invuln save, and they say, wow, that's that's never going to end up in one of my lists. Too fragile, too expensive, no thank you. Um, but in Yanari, uh, we get to take any of the Yanari spells with it. And typically what you take with the uh, the Hemlock is Storm of Whispers, which is a 9-inch radius from the base of the plane in all directions. And every unit in that 9 inches, uh, you're going to roll 3 dice for, and on 4-ups, it's a mortal. So when you have this 18-inch wide radius with uh, a plane in the center of it with a fairly large base, you're hitting a lot of units with this. And you're just going, hey, that unit, roll three dice, it's going to take one, it's going to take two, it's going to take three, and, and, and so on. Okay, so that, this sounds like a devastating alpha strike potential if you go first. Let's keep going down this um, logic line of first turn. Also, obviously, something please seems to play very differently if you're going second versus first turn. But let's just keep going. What is the rest of your stuff doing? Cool, yeah. So definitely on that on that first turn note there's there's plenty of threats being put into the opponent's lap uh the striking scorpions they were aggressively deployed nine inches away from their deployment zone they're moving up seven they're going to get an easy charge on something and typically they're one of the last thing you deployed and you're picking out exactly what they want to charge already lining them up lining it up uh same goes for the falcon dropping in you know exactly what you want those banshees to charge into uh like you mentioned we're giving them uh we're giving them the ghost walk and uh, hopefully you got a uh, fate dice for an extra six on top of that. So we're, we're pretty much going to be making that nine inch charge every time. Being able to pick the units that you want to kill with your melee and being able to pick where they are on the board for the incarn, very big deal. Uh, support weapons, typically you're going to play them cagey and keep them out of line of sight and kind of shoot what you can get in range. But with everything that we just put on their side of the table... Uh, a lot of time I'll get really aggressive and I'll, I'll push their six inches forward. I'll get in range of something that they were hoping that I would not get in range with, with, uh, you know, 3D3 shots, strength 12, AP4, D6 plus two. So just continuing on that, that high pressure, tons of damage right off the bat, uh, trying to get everything into combat 
as quickly as possible. All of the psychers are going to be moving up, getting a position, either doing their, their psychic actions or reaching like a max inch, 18, 18 inch uh, jinx and a restrain. Typically, we'll get in, into range of uh, Mirror of Minds for the Shadow Seer. And everyone's kind of contributing to this just big old hit you in the face alpha strike. I love it. I think it's a really aggressive way to play Eldar. Yeah, same. And I don't think we ran through the psychic powers on the rest of the psychers. And yeah, I think hearing about you know whether you made the choice to opt for different powers or what have you might be might be interesting to to walk through for sure. Yeah, the uh, the three pack of the Warlock Skyrunners are taking Protect Jinx and Quick and Restrain. Uh, I'm typically almost every time going to be casting Jinx just to to either make the Incarn completely not even give you a six up save or to try to combo with the uh, Scatter Lasers uh, from the other units to where I'm just going to try to tear something down jinx is a is so warlocks they get you know, a power that has a, a you know a good side and a bad side jinx is the uh the damaging side the the aggressive side of that what what does jinx do uh jinx is minus one to your armor save whereas protect is plus one to an armor save so you know even in um armor of contempt if i jinx something and then shoot something that has uh ap zero you're still going to be taking a save at minus one armor save. And armor contempt's pretty much useless at that point. So Jinx, Jinx is great. I do have a lot of uh, minus four AP shots in the list. So Jinxing something that has armor contempt and a, and a real good save, and maybe they're hoping to still save on fives or sixes because they're, you know, first turn, maybe they deployed into some cover. All of a sudden Jinx comes along and it's like, well, you're just going to pick those right off and they're going to go straight through your armor. Uh, there's also Quicken Restrain. Uh, the Quicken Half is uh, in Psychic Phase. I get an extra move. Uh, typically, Eldar is going to use this to bring a Psyker to the midfield and do Warp Ritual and then Quicken them away to keep them out of uh, out of danger. Um, I like to use Restrain. To, uh, restrain is going to half their movement. Uh, it makes them fail an action if they're doing one, and it also makes it so they can't do an action. I'll be restraining something that's going to want to come and uh, crack back next turn and either take out one of my melee units, or maybe they're going to try to run to a point, and I'm just going to slow them down and just keep... Yeah, 18-inch range on that. Yeah, Yeah, 18-inch range on both of them. Um, The whole thing is just going along with the Alpha Strike, just pinning you back in deployment, slowing you down, tying you up, keeping you away from objectives, keeping you away from my backline. And that's a big bubble, because you get 18 inches plus the movement of the of the character that's on the Skyrunner, got a six-inch cast, so, I'm sorry, a uh, six warp charge value, so reliable, big old threat range, can be punishing to some armies. Oh, yeah, those Skyrunners are moving uh, 16 inches, so it's you're, you're reaching a lot of what you want to reach. Everything is just going all-in aggressive with this first-turn approach. Mortal Wounds, Banshees Charging, Scorpions Charging, Incard Appearing. There doesn't seem to be much left after this, though. Just to keep going down as if this game were to regress. If someone were to do like screening at you or something, and then your your bombers couldn't get in awesome positions, your hemlock can land exactly in the middle of their army, and your scorpions and banshees hit your opponent's choice of target instead of your choice of targets, and then they splat back basically, they can hit you in their retaliation. What follows up? You know, there's not much left after that, or am I missing something? Uh, yeah, there's there's not too much follow up uh, as far as screening the void raven bomber. Uh, I can't fly off the board and still bomb where I want to bomb. Um, as far mm-hmm. as screening the hemlock out, it is a quite a large range. And if if people are gonna get cute and screen, or if they're changing their deployment too much to try to combat what I'm doing, 
oftentimes they they see later on that they put themselves in weird positions for their game plan and their scoring to where in deployment that that kind of mind game of of knowing what I'm about to do and trying to stop it kind of stopped them from doing what they wanted to do in the first place. That's interesting. Sounds like some really cool stuff we're going to discuss in part two when we get into actual matchups and how you screening is a forgotten art almost. (laughs) Yeah. There's, I haven't ran into too many lists that have just chaff units. They want to throw away. Um, You know, typically everyone has a purpose for bringing a specific unit into their list. And even if it's a unit that's going to sit on a point and sit there all game, that's, that's still, you know, it has a purpose. And if, and if they use that to screen and it's no longer there, well, now they're going to have to have a, a more expensive, more killy unit sit on a point somewhere. So everything lost is, is still a, no, I get it. a win in my book. And, you know, if, if uh, they think I'm going to put a Falcon down and then charge into something really cheap with my Banshees and throw them away, then, then I just don't get out and charge. And I'll just shoot the screen with uh, the Falcon and I'll wait for an next turn to charge with the Banshees when they can uh, get out an extra three inches and advance and charge. Very nice. So it's, you're still using that Eldar flexibility, which I like a lot. Let's talk about the flip side to your strategy, because you seem to say you phantasm into reserve and things hide, and that's a totally different game plan. So if you're going second, your scorpions are still nine just away from your own deployment zone. Your flyers are able to potentially be shot out of the sky. And Karn is hiding behind a wall, I guess. What do you do from here? All right, so the the list is very elite, very uh, min unit. So everything is is hidden behind something in my backline. And the things that you just called out are the three units that I'm going to be phantasming off the board. Uh, my list starts with 2CP exactly, so it's exactly for phantasm. The striking scorpions are now in uh, in reserves. Both planes are now in reserves. Your first turn is spent getting your movement, you know, getting your screens going for when I do eventually come at you. And then your turn's over because you won't be able to see anything else on the list. Right, your footprint is like an Incarn who can still hide behind a wall, obscuring terrain, some warlocks on bikes, three Shadowrunners, three D-cannons, and troops. That's really manageable. Oh, yeah. So, But what do you do from there? Like, I, I get, okay, this is how you survive. The Scorpions and Falcon and Banshees and two planes in reserve. That's all your damage is now hiding, so it can beta strike, basically, come in again, turn two and turn three. But... Your opponent gets board control, because what are you going to do? Contest that with three D-cannons and some Shroud Runners? So how do you actually claw back into that game? Hey man, if they they can't contest anything if they're not alive. That's the plan. Paul, I'm trying to figure out how we kill them. You know, that's, <laughs> that's the secrets. <laughs> so, alright, uh, going second, yeah, they, they push forward, they get their board control. Um, it passes back to my turn. Now, even more of my psychic, uh, my psychic abilities are going to be in range while also maintaining safe positions. Um, I'll end up getting vision for, you know, for smites and for shards of light. And, uh, even the incarn can probably move 10 and get within range of, of doing some, uh, some psychic casts. Uh, so it's, it's actually going second. I'll do a lot more mortals in the psychic phase than I would have going first because of, more units in range and more units in line of sight. Um, they're also coming in range of my D cannons, which now don't have to pop out and be vulnerable. They can, you know, maintain their spot and kind of wait for the right time to pop out, but still shoot through the walls this turn. Um, and the way the missions are structured, I mean, just you kind of support this is that sometimes you won't get command points unless you control some of those objectives out there in no man's land. Therefore, kind of incentivizing people to come out, and they may take that incentive feeling like they can endure some of this this damage that they don't know is coming yet exactly and also with um the forward deploy from my rangers uh so 
I also won't be losing out on getting the CP from some of those missions where you have to be out in the center. Um, and it also, some melee lists might see, oh, hey, there's rangers there. If I can advance and charge, that can be a, you know, a great anchor point to get even further back. But at the same time, it's like, all right, you can take my rangers. Now my incarn's going to be right there for next turn. So I hope you didn't like that unit. You just send it to the rangers. So it's, it's, there's a lot of like cat and mouse going on. And when I go second on you know, how far they want to come, uh, how far they want to come up the board and what they want to actually give me for going second. We've talked a ton about how to remove models. And I do think lists like this are pretty much specialist at how to obliterate uh, multiple small unit build armies. Definitely. Um, a, a lot of the, you know, the movement that I have here and the different style of guns and, and the different uh, damage and AP of the guns uh, combining to where the movement allows me to pick my target and have the best profiles going into the best defensive profiles they can pick. So uh, almost always in control of just picking the things that I need to die and having the most efficient way to do it. This game is not just about removing models. It's about scoring points, and that is done largely through the primary and then secondary choices. Before we talk about the the secondary choices, how, how do you feel your primary game is? Is that is that a big source of, I mean, could could be the largest source of points over the course of the games, but you know, uh, how strongly do you think you play into the primaries of, of these missions? Uh, so, so going first, primary is 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 practically perfect. Um, like I mentioned, I have a lot of ways to tie up the enemy, slow them down, pin them back, and meanwhile, my troops are kind of just sitting there and they're they're doing their actions, they're just chilling on uh, primary objectives. Uh, going second. It's a it's a little more difficult to get out there with them and and maintain uh, some safety for them since you know it's a very elite list. I don't have a lot of things that are going to be sitting on points, um, but at the same time, with that killing potential, you're probably not going to have a lot of things sitting on points uh, going into turns three, four, and five. I'm really eager to get into the secondary thing, but is part of your strategy for playing the primary targeting your opponent's scoring capabilities rather than just their their brute offense, their main strategy? Or is it like killing the five-man backfield stuff to cause inefficiencies throughout their army? Uh, yeah, it's definitely definitely a little bit of both. Um, having that ability with the planes uh, to kind of target what I want and either restrict their primary through maybe getting rid of all of their uh, objective-sitting units um, or just you know clearing them back from, from the middle points to where they, they can't really get there too much. Um, Another thing that we haven't gone over yet is the uh, the shroud runners, you know, and their ability to slow movement as well. So That's right, the shroud there's runners. A, there's a, yeah, sorry, I was yeah. just eager to ask about these things. I was like, who takes these, and why just one random unit of them? All right. Yeah, I mean, between uh, the shroud runners and the uh, uh, restrained quicken, there's there's like kind of a lot of, of tar pitting going on to where my opponents often find it really hard to get out to the objectives. And then, like I said before, with the offensive capabilities, it's hard for them to stick and stay on the objective. How do the Shroud Runners slow you down? What's the trick there? Yeah, so they have a 1 CP stratagem that they can use in the opponent's movement phase or charge phase. Um, if you're within 12 inch of the Shroud Runners, they can roll a D3. And uh, whatever you rolled is going to be subtracted from their movement or charge. And they're also going to take that many mortal wounds. Yeah, that doesn't sound like much, but I, the few times I've played Shroud Runners, that's been like amazing. Honestly, uh, yeah. you can tell the look on a player's face when it happens too. Like you know, we look, we look and watch it a lot of games, and when that that goes off, it's always miserable for the opponent. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's so, like a baby tangle foot. 
<laughs> Definitely. Yeah, sometimes the opponent, they're they're really relying on getting their 9-inch charge going, and then you know, you're taking 2-3 inches away from it, and all of a sudden, that's not looking too good anymore. Definitely. Or they're trying they're trying to use units that are, you know, moving 6 inches and they're trying to get their, you know, their 3 up advance to just make it onto a point and all of a sudden you're like, "Well, I put my shroud runners out there for a reason." And now you're, you know, minus 2-3 movement. And they're also not just going to instantly vaporize to return firepower. Assuming you get the benefits of cover, they're a bike that actually benefits like their infantry so they can and they get plus 2. So they can just walk around in a ruin and get a 2 up safe. Exactly. And and just like every unit in the list, it's another point where the incarn's going to get movement up the field. So if you play the Shroud Runners loose and play them aggressive, really want to slow their movement down, you throw them up board, they do their thing, they slow movement down, and then maybe they do get removed. Um, yes, you keep them in, uh, in cover so they get their bonuses to cover, and they may have to invest more into them than they thought to take them down. And then when they finally do, hey, there's the incarn ready for next turn. I dig that. Before we get into the secondary choices about maybe what some go-tos are, or that you, you, know, you, you, you pick out situationally, let's take a quick break for a little bit of station identification, and then we'll be right back. Like what you're listening to? Be sure to check out the second part of this episode, where we break down specifically how our guest plays against all the top armies in the game. Want even more awesome Warhammer content? Check out The War Room. The War Room. You'll gain access to the minds of the best Warhammer players in the world with brand new content every single week. Join our amazing community, elevate your game, and enjoy your hobby more. We are back, everybody. Still got Chase here with myself and Nick. We just talked about how to engage with the primary, how you can score points while denying some of your your opponents some points, figuring out ways to maybe stymie some of their strategies for, for board control. Uh, but now let's let's jump if we can to a little bit of pregame stuff of picking secondaries. Uh, another you know way to win this this game, scoring points. Do you have some go tos that that you pick that are very suited to the list? Well, we know the list can kill. So uh, some go tos if they if they ever give up something like no prisoners or assassinate. Those are those are the top of the list I want to take. What is giving uh, up assassinate while we're on the subject? Like, yeah, I was like, going to jump in there too. Yeah, like three characters plus a warlord bonus. Is that enough that we take assassinate? Does the durability or accessibility of the characters factor in? Uh you know that it really doesn't factor in because of the movement and the power of the incarn. Um, I can probably always get her into combat with whatever character you're trying to hide. Um, the point wise, uh, I'd have to I'd have to compare whatever the max I can get for Assassinate is, because that's typically what I'm going to get, versus whatever the next best secondary would be. There's the reason people... I think that... Go ahead, Paul. So the, the reason I think that Nick may have asked that is that we often find that Assassination can be a trap to where you, you're putting a lot of power in your opponent's hands to potentially deny you those points or make those points difficult for you to get. Either you're chasing them you know, the, the whole time, or you know they can just simply deny you those by not putting them on the table or whatever and it sounds like your list is dynamic enough and maybe killing enough to to kind of put some of that power back in your hands uh yeah definitely uh some players uh through the whole process of trying to corral the incarn or avoid the incarn they won't wrap their character well enough to where there's now a plane you know close enough to your character in the backfield where it gets free shots at your character between that and also Bahroth's movements, uh, he could be quite character killy himself. 
So there's there's a, a lot of ways I can attack from multiple angles and, and get to things that you didn't want me to get to. I guess I'm still curious about the secondaries, but we never really covered Baharaz either. And uh, he doesn't, he's a man that doesn't need much introduction. He's been on this podcast so many times, baby bird. But you're spending two CP just to take him in an, in an auxiliary slot. Is he really that worth it for you? What's the role he's doing for you? He really is that worth it for me. And this is the perfect timing to bring him up because he is a secondary scoring monster. Oh, would you look at that? Um, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, behind enemy lines and scout, are are made for Baharoth. His his ability to just jump back in the corner of the the enemy lines, and if he wants to, just sit there. Or if he doesn't want to, he can pop back out, shoot, and then fly right back there at the end of the turn. Um, he can late game get back there anytime he wants, and and just scout the next turn for a, a full four points. And just his his ability to stay alive is is. Kind of what we just talked about with with baiting the opponent to take assassinate. Well, between the Incarn and Baharoth, maybe my five uh, my five HQ choices here uh, don't look as juicy anymore. So yeah, he's like he's that. really a secondary helper rather than a damage dealer. Do you also use him for primary control for because he's obsec? Is he just a mission piece for you? Yeah, he's he's pretty much just a mission piece. Uh, sometimes the mission is is primary. Yeah, he he does it all. Uh, he is whatever he needs to be. Uh, I definitely don't one-track him into Behind Enemy Lines and Scout. It's kind of like, if I couldn't get anything else out there, he can pick up that slack. Or if I lost a uh, primary on one of the flanks and I need him to go over there and steal it, he's he's good for that too. All right, cool. So you're taking Behind Enemy Lines, or you said Scout, is that one of the Elder ones you're referring to? Yeah, Scout the Enemy, it's the Eldar one. Um, if a, a unit, any unit can do this action outside of six of my deployment zone uh, for two points. And if I do it in my enemy deployment zone, it's for four points. Uh, it completes the same turn if you use rangers. Otherwise, it completes the next turn. So something like Baharoth with a wound cap, uh, if he's in the, the very back corner of their backfield, you may be able to shoot him, take the three wounds off, but he's still going to be there next turn to complete the action. That's why he's so perfect for it. Nice, nice. Really clever play on that secondary. It's one I've thought about using a lot, but never really went for because I didn't trust my two ranger squads to do it, but Baharoth helps out. Have you ever considered adding even more rangers to help it? Uh, no, the fact that any unit can do it is is enough for me. It's not too difficult for me to find a spot uh, tucked away from the action and just do it for two points. Um, so with a, a floor of 10 points and uh, an ability to max it, um, looking pretty good. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So when do you change that game around though? It's like so, you know, we talked about a few, but like what what do you look for in your opponent's army to select those as as being your your primaries and then when would you potentially change that? Um I I kind of try to see if if they're the type of uh army maybe they're more melee heavy and they're really going to be coming down the field towards me and they're not going to be sitting too much in their backfield. That's that's a pretty safe place to be for you know something like Baharoth or something like the Shroud Runners who get pregame move and then their full move they can get behind enemy lines and then kind of be back there either to waste melee units time or to make them have that choice of hey am I going to stay in my deployment zone this turn or am I going to come out towards everything else towards the midfield so so kind of just based on what they're going to have in their backfield how fast they're going to be getting to me and my backline and my you know my rangers and my cavalites. If they have flyers, things like that, if, if they have flyers and they're going to come and just kill all of my rangers and all my cabalites in like the first turn, then then maybe scout's probably not the way to go. Um, pretty, pretty much just trying to assess the, the enemy's capabilities of, of stopping 
the the uh, the secondary is whether I'm going to take it or not. So when they're playing against someone who's not giving up any secondaries in their list design, right? So some armies I'm thinking of that are very strong right now, and this is kind of for part two, but um, they don't give anything up by design. No, no, they cap out of like eight no prisoners points. Three characters very hard to get to. Do you switch into like a psychic secondary then, or do you just muscle through it? Uh, yeah, I mean, psychic secondaries are also pretty much auto-take if I feel like they don't have the ability to stop uh, the psychic power from going off in, a, in an easy fashion. So, you know, maybe they have stratagems for a four-up deny, then I'm probably not looking to take a psychic, psychic secondary. Um, if they have the ability to do 3d6 denies, I'm probably not going to do a psychic secondary. Um, some some armies don't have any way to stop you, and then it's like, hey, all right, well, I'm going to take interrogation then, because that's going to get me the max 15. Uh, other armies, maybe it's it's more of an even playing field, and I couldn't find anything better to take. So I'll take Warp Ritual and, and really just uh, lean on Fate Dice, lean on my cast of Focus Will, and you know start my Psychic Power off with a plus 8. Plus um, 8. <laughs> and, and try to battle it out for uh, Warp Ritual. Did you say plus 8? Uh, yeah, well, I guess you I mean, start with the six and the fate die. Yeah, 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 technically, okay. yeah, you start with the six yeah, okay. and you you get the plus two and then you roll one dice. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, Magnus got nothing on this. <laughs> yeah, cool, cool. That makes sense. It really does. Do you ever consider raise the banners to try to get your opponent to come to you? I think like that's a that's a lovely trick I like to use for close combat armies. Yeah, so that's um, and a couple matchups uh, I do like taking raise the banners. Um, more so things like Tau, where I want them to kind of come out of their bubble. And kind of spread out a little bit more, and maybe uh, you know, give up a couple of uh, inches that they normally wouldn't have coming towards me. As far as uh, melee armies go, I mean, a lot of the time I feel like I could do anything against them, uh, strictly off of you know movement, range, uh, and psychic powers, and, and the flyers. It's just uh, it's a real uphill battle for most melee armies. Gotcha. Uh, thanks, thanks for walking us through that. Uh, now we get to, a, uh, I think, a pretty exciting part where we talk about <laughs> command points. It's like your favorite time of the podcast. This is a look. This is one of those things. It's it's kind of a get a you know a bit of a skill check. Uh, although and and Nephilim has has made it I think even more so. You said you start the game with two command points. You normally spend those. So you're kind of on a you know a very slim diet of CPs over the course of the game. And you know are the things that you build towards are there are there times when you don't go through of that basically exhausting all your command points. You know, this is our brutal and cunning segment. So we talk about some combos or things that either, you know, you keep a couple of CPs in your back pocket for, uh, or you build towards very early. You know, you don't seem to have that luxury. What's going on? Yeah, I definitely don't. Um, the the aggression of the list and the kind of threat overlord uh, overload that it's building, uh, I'm not typically playing the, the hit and run style that you see most Eldar play. So I don't need to hold CP back for, uh, you know, fire and reposition and uh, the matchless agility and, you know, things like that where I'm going to be kind of popping in and out and shooting and falling back and, and that kind of thing. Um, so I don't need the CP too much for that. If, you know, if I had to Phantasm going forward, I'm going to get, you know, my one, two CP turn. It's probably going into lightning fast reactions a lot of the time just to keep my elite army on the board. Uh, the more pieces I lose, the vastly more difficult it becomes to you know score everything. So I uh, definitely prioritize the defensive side of things as far as the stratagems go um, versus the offensive side of things where the list is kind of built to do that anyway. Um, there might be certain matchups where I know I want to hold on to 2 CP for using 4 Warned, 
Um, maybe something really nasty is going to come out of Deep Strike. And, you know, I have the D cannons there and I'll make sure that the Farseer is within 12 inches of them and use two CP forewarned do that aspect scan and try to yeah, tear so apart whatever comes down. So it's like an aspect scan for you marine players out there. Aspect scan. It's it allows you to use... fire on things arriving out of reserve if, as long as you meet some certain conditions. Right, yeah. As long as you're within 12, and, 12 inches of a Farseer and the unit that I'm shooting at is 18 inches away from uh, whichever unit I'm activating that's within 12 of the Farseer, then uh, I get to shoot them as they come in from Deep Strike. It's so interesting, it, your your secondary, your stri- sorry, your command points are being spent on reactive defensive stuff. Like I would s- describe Forewarned and Lightning Fast both as counterplays to whatever your opponent is trying to do, as opposed to active plays that your army is trying to do. So why is that? I feel like for an aggressive army, all you're interested in is executing your own plan really hard, and your best offense, or your best defense is a good offense. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we kind of uh, uh, started this out with, you know, when I have to use Phantasm. So that's typically kind of throwing me into that plan B mode where I'm, you know, a lot more, uh, a lot more defensive, a lot more cagey. And, uh, you know, in that plan A mode, then yeah, definitely, you know, I'm going to start with 2CP, go up to 3, and then I'm thinking things like Unparalleled Mastery, I'm think- uh, which is uh, 1CP to cast an additional Psychic Power. I'm thinking things like uh, giving my support weapons uh, full rerolls a hit with, uh, I always forget the name of it. Um, uh, not Guide? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Mar- Martial Citizenry, I believe. Yeah, I think that's right. Well done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was, okay, Martial Citizenry is, citizenry is uh, reroll hits of ones for them. The other one is... Maybe Wrath of Vol or something. I will say, we often memorize the effects <laughs> right. and yeah. not the name of the stratagem, so thanks for digging deep here. Yeah, I'm going to forget the name, but yeah, the effect is uh, 1 CP if the unit I'm targeting with the D cannons is within 12 inches of a ranger, uh, you get to reroll hits. And the Shroudrunners so, count for this, right? The Shroudrunners do not count okay, for this. Okay, so just the actual ranger units you have. Yes, the, the actual physical rangers on bikes... Do not help and count for this, which is <laughs> it's it's very frustrating. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, that's but cool. yeah, those would be the offensive strategies I go to. Just extra casts, you know, rerolls with the D cannons. You know, uh, aside from that, there's there's not too much that the Eldar stratagems really really offer to uh, to offensive capabilities, unless you're you know you're running something like Hail of Doom, where you know where you want to blade storm, uh, you know, things like that. A couple more off the wall questions here. One of the abilities you know already has is plus one hit as your units get damaged, um, but not destroyed. Do you ever try to find yourself creatively doing damage to your own squads to try to trigger that, or is it just you use it when you get it? Uh, yeah, I've, I've I've thought about that. Um, no, I don't typically try to do that because my units are so precious to me. Since there's <laughs> there's really not that many of them there. The elf way, yes. Yeah, so they're gonna die on their own. They don't need my help, and uh, you know. Uh, another another thing I use CP on a lot of the time is when that last weapon is shooting my either my Banshee Exarch or my Striking Scorpion Exarch, and I just really want him to be alive for next turn. I'll reroll the save for sure, even if it's a five up. <laughs> that I'll CP be like, you know what? so tempting. <laughs> exactly, I, and I'll do it. I'll, I'll go for you know a five up and vulnerable save CP reroll. Even though it's, it's you know it's terrible. I'm sure the you know professional players right now are rolling their eyes, being like, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. I'm dying inside. Yeah, <laughs> hey, they don't have six wins stacked up at a in a major. Come on, like, I mean, I can't say anything. Chase, congratulations, you did a winning tournament with this. So, like, no, I mean, yeah. it works, it works. 
Yeah, I mean, if it's if it's life or death of uh, striking Scorpion Exarch, um, if he's on the, uh, alive for the next turn, you're talking about seven attacks, hitting on twos now because of the plus one to hit for losing the rest of his squad, and all of those hits are auto wounding, and maybe you jinxed his target, so now it's uh, two damage at AP three. You know, you, you know, you're t- you're talking about a you know good amount of damage coming from one Exarch, and that costs you one CP to keep that profile on the table for sure. So yeah, if you when you hit that five up, it's it's amazing. So you get yourself down to the last save that they could possibly make you take, and it's the last three roll. You know, that's for sure. Let's roll it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, one more question I had before we kind of wrap it up here, if Paul has any more. Your army has two different modes, which I think is really interesting. It's a very rare thing where an army plays so drastically different first or second character. You know, usually it's, let's be a little more cagey and defensive on going second or a little more aggressive going first, but you're just two different factions, really, kind of, with your play style, how you're going first or second. And your unit choices almost have a reflection of that. Some of them are amazing going first, like the Void Raven Bomber. But then you have like things like the decans, which get better going second. So, how did you how do you deal with the I guess relationship of your army and first or second turn as a player? Deal with the relationship. Um, well, I cross my fingers and and I pray real hard that I go first a lot of the time. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. that never works in the tournaments. <laughs> Maybe it did. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, in in PSO, I think I went first uh, only half the time. So it, it definitely was only exactly uh, average, not bad. Yeah, yeah. Which it would have been nice to go a little bit, you know, a little bit more often going first. But yeah, I mean, the the relationship between the two, like I, it's just for me, it's a lot more fun going first, of course. Uh, for my opponent, it's a lot more fun if I went second. And there's a lot more uh, game being played when I go second. Yeah, I like that. No, I think that that pretty brings us to a conclusion here in episode one, and we're about to take just a just a couple of second break, and then go into episode two, where we we talk about you know the nitty gritty about how to beat this list, uh, some of the things even more in depth about how you kind of get the advantage early on and continue to press that and, and score points, and and you know we'll talk about some matchups with some specific army builds and opponents and you know it's always a fun time so if you have not subscribed and not joined us over there i think you will enjoy it if you are uh only listening to this part please leave us some five-star reviews leave some comments leave some thumbs up do all the things that help other people find this with the engagement it means a whole lot to us if that's what you can do kind of like a hassle-free way to interact with the show and and maybe alert some other folks that this is something they should be listening to uh chase Thanks for all the insights so far. Oh yeah, no problem. It was a, it was a good time. Nick, is always a pleasure. We will see y'all in a minute. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. TheArtOfWar40K.com